Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Over the last 30 years, the Irish state and the Catholic Church have been rocked by scandals involving the oppression of women and the abuse of children. During the last century, church and state in Ireland built up a system of incarceration for women who didn't follow a repressive sexual code. They also locked up countless children whose parents didn't have a conventional relationship or simply didn't have the money to look after them. Violent abuse was pervasive throughout the system of industrial schools, Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes. After a long conspiracy of silence, Irish public life finally began coming to terms with this dark history from the 1990s. It's still a major political issue in Ireland today. Our guest today is a leading authority in Ireland's carceral state. Sarah Ann Buckley teaches history at the National University of Ireland, Galway. I began by asking her about the nature of this repressive system. So Ireland holds at present probably the title of having institutionalised more of its population than any other country in the world in the 20th century. And the key institutions that I'm going to talk about, one is the industrial and reformatory schools and the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse found that abuse in these schools was systemic, it was pervasive, it was sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. And throughout the operation of those schools, about a hundred to 150,000 children were placed from the 19th century. The Magdalene Laundries are a very notorious institution that were primarily for women who had a child when they weren't married or pregnant women. It was also women that might have been convicted of an offence. And the figures for for the Magdalene Laundries, they vary from 30,000 to 50,000. And the last laundry only closed in 1996. So the abuse in the Magdalene Laundries, emotional abuse, physical abuse, women being detained without their will for numerous years, their names being changed, their identities being taken, not being paid for their work and their labour. And the work that was done in these laundries was incredibly backbreaking physical work. And then the connected stories of women who were actually sent as children to the industrial schools and then on to the Magdalene Laundries and some later to institutions till they were 21. So you have the connection between these institutions as well. Another interconnected story is the history of Ireland's forced adoptions, which is threaded through a lot of these institutions. The mother and baby homes or uh, the term home really shouldn't apply. The mother and baby institutions are very much a product of independent Ireland. The first is opened in, in 1921, although the idea to have an institution only for pregnant unmarried women was 15, 20 years older than this. The recent commission to inquire into child abuse looked at 18 institutions 14 of them being mother and baby homes and four of them being county homes. They found huge issues in regards to infant mortality. So infant mortality rates as high as 80% in one institution. And that was of infants under the age of one. 
they also showed that many of the women who were sent there were treated incredibly badly. What it certainly is, is a history of women being forced into institutions by a range of individuals in their community, no respect for women who are not married or their children, and intergenerational abuse that we're still seeing the effects of in Ireland today. And I guess just one kind of figure to put in there, even though the population of Ireland in the 1950s, it had dropped to 2.6 million because of emigration, but uh, Ian O'Donnell and Owen O'Sullivan have found that in the 1950s, 1% of the population was, was institutionalised in Ireland in one of the myriad of institutions. So it's a huge part of our national history. One of the really striking characteristics of Ireland in the 19th and 20th centuries was the extraordinarily high rate of emigration when compared to almost any West European country at the time and well up into the late 20th century. How do you think that was related to this climate of sexual and cultural repression? First of all, in the sense of that climate prompting people to leave the country, but also in the sense that it made it easier to maintain. I think it's it's really critical. Um, like you said, um, before the Great Famine, there was over 8 million people living in Ireland. A century later, there's 2.6 million. So emigration is a huge part of the Irish story during these two centuries. Women emigrate more than men and single women emigrate more than men. And there's a reason for that. Many of them are leaving because of the culture, the culture of repression, the culture in which a certain type of respectability mattered to your life course. Many are leaving because they have to. They're pregnant or they've suffered abuse or they've been institutionalized and the stigma attached to that is is too great. To the point as to what's left with, with so many people emigrating, certainly we see a lot of the more radical members of Irish society leaving, especially after independence. And you do have a situation where it is easier to control the culture. It is easier to control the narrative with this smaller population and with the Catholic hierarchy and the state having quite an enormous amount of control. So I think emigration is a very key part of that story. In the 40s and 50s and on into the late 80s, a lot of the women and men that are leaving, but I'll I'll talk specifically about the women, they unfortunately end up even leaving the perhaps quite repressive environment. Many of them actually move to the UK and come in contact with the Catholic Social Welfare Bureau and other organisations that are still maintaining that, that culture. Yet we do know from research of women from, say, Jennifer Redmond and Lorraine Grimes, it shows that they still seem to have fared slightly better in the UK than they did in Ireland. The time with which they had to stay in institutions was shorter. There was a possibility of, you know, getting a new start or being able to leave whatever stigma or situation behind. But yeah, it's, it, the push-pull is, is huge. What were the origins of Ireland's carceral state? Is it something that you have to trace back before Irish independence in the 1920s? And who was most affected by it? What groups of people were most affected by the system? So I guess a a fairly general answer to start with is 
women are overrepresented in all of the institutions and except for prisons they're overrepresented particularly people in poverty and in one way you have to start with the 19th century to understand the context of them in the 20th century so one of the first institutions we have is the Dublin Foundling Hospital and that's in the 18th century but it has an infant mortality rate of up to 75 percent Yet we also see those figures in the 20th century when we talk about the mother and baby institutions. The Magdalene Laundries are are a 19th century institution and they're initially for women to come in to be reformed, but they're allowed to leave the institutions if, if they wish. So one of the biggest changes we see from the 19th to the 20th century is that people are staying in the institutions for much longer periods and many of them can't leave the institution. That could be that uh, they don't, haven't been told they can leave or that they are being forcibly detained. Now, the industrial schools are specifically for children from the ages of four to 16 years. It started off that they would be children that were orphaned or deserted And what we see in the 19th and into the 20th century is it keeps growing the categories of children that can be placed. And a lot of the children in the 20th century, their parents are being brought to court for child neglect, which is a very broad um, category. And that could often be attached to their parents not having enough resources to keep them. We then have the role of the religious orders, which is very critical because most of the institutions, except for the psychiatric institutions, are run by, in the 19th century, Protestant and Catholic. By the the 20th century, it's primarily Catholic institutions. So that's another really big factor. And I guess finally, even the mother and baby homes are specifically for women who are pregnant and most of them, 97% in the recent commission report, are unmarried. But a lot of the other institutions would have had single women. The county homes, which were previously the workhouse, had a large proportion of single women who became pregnant and needed especially financial assistance to, to support themselves. So let's just say it's complicated. <laughs> you have to look at each institution, but there is an overarching theme that your gender, your class, and often your religion have a big effect on whether you're in an institution and what type of institution. Cardinal Laurie stepped ashore, the first papal legate to land in Ireland for over two centuries. In 1932, the Irish Free State hosted the International Eucharistic Congress, a major gathering of the Catholic Church. The event symbolised the close ties between church and state in the wake of Irish independence. Accompanied by Mr de Valera and his ministers, he inspected the Guard of Honour, followed by his retinue of Vatican officials in Elizabethan dress. Ireland's leader, Eamon de Valera, welcomed the papal legate on his arrival in Dublin. Streets along the route had been thronged for hours before the papal legate was due, and he received a tumultuous reception. In Dublin's Phoenix Park... A million people attended the open-air mass and heard the famous tenor John McCormack perform the song Panos Angelicus. 
Almost half a century later, Pope John Paul II came to Ireland in 1979. Once again, there was a million-strong crowd in the Phoenix Park for an open-air mass. That was one-third of the population of the Irish state. In hindsight, the Pope's visit seems like the high point of Catholic influence in Ireland before it entered a long period of decline. At the time, however, it seemed to many secular-minded people that clerical power would never be broken. As the papal helicopter touches down in the Phoenix Park, an eruption of welcome from one and a quarter million people, a sea of waving flags and banners, waves of applause. They've come from every county in the country, from many places abroad, and they press forward for a closer glimpse, the fortunate ones to touch Pope John Paul. But the crowd soon falls into a hush and becomes a congregation. The Catholic Church in Ireland appeared to have a particular concern with regulating sexuality and controlling women, even by the general standards of Catholicism in Europe at the time. Where do you think that impulse came from? I think uh, the type of Roman Catholicism that develops from the late 19th century is certainly entrenched in the free state. And what we what we really have is we have two different classes who have come together and an elite that is very much Catholic and Roman Roman Catholic and the effect for women and for children as well but primarily for women is that there's a raft of legislation directed at them so take for example the Irish constitution in 1922 when the Irish Free State is formed it guaranteed equal rights and opportunities, quote, without distinction of sex. But by 1937, there is no guarantee of equal citizenship for women. It's become now their role as wives as mother and mothers. So we're seeing even in those two constitutions how women and how the state and the church are viewing women is, is changing. And sometimes I think a lot of the legislation, be it the censorship of contraceptives, the banning of women on juries, the gender quotas when it came to industry. There's a long list of examples where women's lives were curtailed. But a lot of the times I think that there's a big focus there as well on on men and on male unemployment. And a lot of the legislation is is about curtailing women to ensure traditional family model with, you know, a male breadwinner and women within the home. And that's certainly the ideology that the Catholic Church in Ireland are promoting. We can see this in the sermons at the time. We can see this in the influence that especially the hierarchy has on political and other decisions. And Catholic social teaching becomes part of the norm and and legislation, particularly in the 20s, 30s and 40s. Women did play a role in Ireland's struggle for national independence during the early 20th century, including some prominent feminists. How did the new Irish state go from that opening to the repressive atmosphere of the 1930s and the 1940s? So certainly women played a huge role from, you know, the, the beginning of the 20th century up until Irish independence. There was a tension in regards to feminism, republicanism and nationalism. 
but I, I, I certainly don't think that the the radicalized women of that time would have thought they could have been curtailed as much as they were. One thing I'll say is there were organizations that continued to oppose the coercive and discriminatory legislation, but they were basically drowned out over time. So what we see is that the the culture throughout the 1920s just becomes more and more about women within the home. There were still women like Hanashi Skeffington, Jenny Wise Power and other feminists who kept the message going, but it was just this minority message. And I suppose in some ways what you're seeing is, even though there is this small group between the first and second wave of feminism, they're probably not having a huge impact on the ground. So it's great that they're there and we we probably have not acknowledged their role enough and Katrina Beaumont has done excellent work, particularly on organisations like the National Council for Women, the Joint Committee of Women's Societies and Social Workers, who all fought against the 1937 Constitution, against the banning of contraceptives. But trying to bring that into the culture of, of the state was certainly difficult. One point you've made about the Irish carceral state is that it wasn't cost effective, strictly speaking, to take children away from families when the main issue was poverty, why did the Irish state prefer to place children in the industrial schools when it was more expensive to do so? I think one of the reasons that they persist with institutionalisation when other countries are certainly curtailing is there is the allegiances with those who are running the institutions. So for the most part, that's the, the religious orders. And then you also have the fact that it would have involved building up social services and particularly social work. So were children to be helped within the family home, they would need to be visited. There would be, I suppose, a development of a type of social service model and a welfare model that did not fit with the ideology. So first of all, you have the fact that the institutions are already built they exist, they are certainly being run primarily by the religious orders. And then on the other hand, what's the alternative? Are they going to train people? Are they going to deal as well with the core issues as to why children are living in poverty, as to why parents can't afford to clothe them, to send them to school? One of the examples I often give with the industrial schools is from 1926, A large number, the tens of thousands of those sent to the schools are because of school non-attendance. And many of those were young men and women, the age of, you know, 10 to 15, who were often out working and bringing in and contributing to the family wage. So they are being penalised for not attending school, but often the reasons for not attending, it's it's not truancy in a, in a way that they would prefer to be out hanging out. It's very much a case that they are out working and contributing to the family income. And there are very few actual welfare supports up until the 1960s, 70s that families could draw upon. And I think that's really at the cusp of why the institutions continue to operate until the late 20th century. What role did the Irish courts and the police have to play in the confinement of women to Magdalene laundries? 
So if you look at the work of, say, Justice for Magdalene's uh, research group or some of the testimonies from women who have spoken of their time, the courts are certainly a, a key part. Often women might be sent for a year, two years. What we see in a lot of the records and also in the testimonies from women is that they often didn't know when they should or could have been released. So it's not only the role of the courts and the Gardaí or or the police force in the sending of women. Often when they ran away, they would be brought back. And again, they didn't know their rights when it came to actually being released. So it's something that goes on throughout their, their time and their detention. In regards to the mother and baby institutions, most were not sent by the courts other than, say, the Bethany Home, which was a Protestant institution that took both women who were pregnant outside of marriage and also uh, women who had gone through the courts. But what you see is that many have agreed or (laughs) they have been told that they have to repay their time and the assistance through their manual labor. So again, you have women who are going through a traumatic experience already, but now are being told that they must work in the institution. And many of these women have told their stories in regards to being in the institution when their children were adopted or taken from the institution and not being given any notice or often not even being told that they were gone. So it's certainly a situation where those in positions of power and that is often the courts and the Gardaí are complicit in how these systems operate. At the beginning of the 1950s Ireland had a coalition government with a young doctor as its health minister Noel Brown. Brown led a successful campaign to eliminate tuberculosis then took a first step towards creating a public health care system. He wanted to introduce free medical treatment for mothers and their children, known as the Mother and Child Scheme. The medical profession opposed the scheme because they saw it as the first step towards a national health service like the one recently established in Britain. The Catholic bishops threw their full weight behind the doctors and presented it as a question of faith and morals. Brown's cabinet colleagues and his party leader Sean McBride refused to support him. He had to resign from the government, but refused to go quietly and publicised the role of the Catholic hierarchy. It was one of the few occasions when the political role of the church in the Irish state was held up to public scrutiny. In the following clip, Noel Brown talks about his approach during the controversy. I pointed out that it was uh, simply the only objection was based on Catholic social teaching. And in fact, one has a right to reject Catholic social teaching if we wish to, uh, conscientiously, as Catholics, we, may, we, need, we don't have to accept Catholic social teaching because it varies from one country to another, one city to another. Indeed, Dublin was forbidden to have a health service, while Belfast is per- permitted to have a health service. So uh, I pointed this out, and uh, they still said, well, we're not going ahead with the scheme, and that's the end of it. And, I, and then I, I insisted that each one of them make his own personal decision. So we went round the cabinet, and uh, each one said that they... I, I said, will you not uh, just take, reject this social teaching and let us go ahead with the scheme, because it's very important. However, every one of them, I think old Mick Keyes was the only one who demurred slightly. 
The rest all said there was no question of them not accepting Catholic social teaching. And uh, Sean McKeown was quite uh, annoyed that I'd even questioned uh, the possibility of his rejecting Catholic social teaching. After I had got that, uh, they, 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 then, they then all said, yes, the scheme must be uh, rejected now. I then got up and I went away. But now I was in a, in, in a bit of a difficulty because uh, I had to try to create a formula whereby I was not... Uh, isolated from the people, uh, um, by rejecting the, the Catholic teaching, it could be said that I was no longer a member of the church and become a Protestant or being excommunicated or something like that. And I didn't particularly want that because I wanted to go on in public life and continue to fight for a better health service. So I had the help of a very distinguished cleric throughout all this is quite interesting, one of them who disagreed with the, the hierarchy throughout it all and their teaching throughout it all, uh, was uh, very helpful in advising me in my attitude, what I could safely do and so on, and, and still remain at least nominally a Catholic or effectively a Catholic or actually a Catholic, whichever way you want to look at it. So we adopted the formula then of accepting the ruling but resigning as minister. Accepted, I accepted as a Catholic, but resigned as, as a minister. Uh, and in that way, I felt that I had uh, refused to allow them to usurp what I believed was the democratic right of a cabinet uh, to dictate what kind of health scheme would be brought in, in operation. What was the significance of the clash between Noel Brown as health minister and the Catholic bishops at the beginning of the 1950s? So the, as it's often known, the uh, modern child scheme controversy is seen by many historians and academics as being the first moment when the Irish state actually confronts the Catholic Church. Noel Brown wanted to bring in free public health care for children up to the age of 16 years and pregnant women. It's often been described as, I suppose, a political showdown between Noel Brown and the Catholic hierarchy, which it certainly was, and it was well covered in in the newspapers at the time. Probably one of the issues that wasn't covered as well was that some of the biggest concerns were around women accessing any reproductive health care, so including any information on contraceptives, which was uh, banned under censorship of publication in the late 1920s, but also any information on abortion services, on basically anything to do with their own bodies. And the feeling was if that were made publicly available, they could attend any doctor. That could be a Protestant doctor, that could be a Catholic doctor who perhaps had more liberal views of of reproductive rights. The other issue was that the the third player in this controversy was the Irish Medical Association, who were against the scheme for financial reasons. They did not feel at the time that a public model would ensure their payment or that, I suppose in many ways, they would be seeing the class of patient that they wanted to. So we have the issues of class, of religion, obviously, and at the core, yet again, you have pregnant women and young children 
uh, and adolescents and their healthcare. What kind of public scrutiny was there at the time while the mass incarceration of women and children was taking place? Did anyone from the Irish political class or the Irish media challenge it directly? There are really very few instances where the situation in regards to Ireland's institution was addressed. We know that there were some left-wing organisations, particularly the Communist Party of Ireland, who would have reported on, and I've written about the death of John Byrne, who died in Artane in the 1930s, and his father tried to follow up the inquest at the time and to raise funds to have a, a proper and an independent investigation into his son's death. You have some references to Dangan Reformatory from the late 1960s. But I think that the key point here is even if politicians are not speaking out at the time, reports are being sent to local government from inspectors, particularly the female inspectors into the mother and baby institutions, which are reporting these incredibly high infant mortality rates. We also know that in regards to the industrial schools, the number of deaths every year are being reported. So while it may not have been widely on the airwaves, our concerns were reported in more left-wing papers. What we do know is that officials knew about the high infant mortality rates. Local councils knew about the high infant mortality rates. Why they didn't act in a more effective and timely manner is difficult, I think, probably even for a historian to understand in the context, because if you're getting a report of 70% of infants under the age of one that have died in a in a institution, it probably says a lot about what those in positions of power thought of the women and the children in these institutions. Since the 1980s, there has clearly been a sharp decline in the influence of the Catholic Church in Irish society, which was encapsulated for many people by the outcome of the abortion referendum in 2018, but going back a long way behind that as well. What do you think were the main factors behind that shift? From the late 1960s, there seems to be more discussion, even in the Irish Times and more uh, mainstream newspapers, about the need for Ireland to modernise, about the restrictions on divorce, on many factors of people's lives. So it's becoming a discussion around Catholicism, around individual rights and around the state. And by the 1980s, I think what we're seeing is, on one hand, after the McGee case, which uh, resulted in contraceptives being available for married couples, We see the foundation in the 70s of the Irish Family Planning Association. We're seeing other organisations that want to campaign for the liberalisation of the laws on divorce. And what's happening is that because the Catholic hierarchy are opposed to, to all of these changes, a cultural shift is emerging. Part of that is also free secondary education, which came in in 1967, and the fact that now People from a broader range of social class are becoming educated, are getting into positions that before were completely outside of their reach if they wanted them. 
and the media as a result are are reacting. In regards to censorship, there's some loosening of the legislation and for individual women, say for single women, there's some welfare reforms that are are significant. So the horribly but so-called named deserted wives allowance is introduced in 1970. In 1973, the unmarried mothers allowance is introduced, which does have quite a, a big impact. The marriage bar is being reviewed and is later discarded. So women no longer have to give up their jobs in certain public roles. So and we're also having the impact of really decades long activism. That group that I mentioned earlier, those groups like the um, the societies that many women were involved in, that kind of connection between first and second wave feminism, that's becoming more mainstream now. And there are more and more calls for a liberalization of a very wide array of course of legislation. What were the landmarks in public exposure of the industrial schools and the Magdalene laundries and the mother and baby homes over recent decades? Many people, I suppose one of the most public was in 1996 when Christine Buckley, her life story, Dear Daughter, was was documented and was actually viewed by, you know, a lot of people in, in the country. States of Fear was a three-part documentary series in the late 90s. Ed Walsh was just four years old when he entered St. Joseph's. The following clip comes from States of Fear. A survivor talks about his experience of abuse in one orphanage in Kilkenny. I think every child in that orphanage suffered somehow or other. If they weren't sexually abused, they suffered mentally and physically. Some, maybe one or two, were lucky. I don't know any of them that were lucky, and I've seen a lot of them since over the years, and I don't know any of them that have been lucky. Maybe the lucky ones are the dead ones. They took the easy way out. Maybe that's what we all should have done. There's no child safe, not with the likes of them people running around. And it's still going on. I'm sure it's still going on in this country. And until they do inquiries and sort the places out, they'd have them in houses now. They don't call them orphanages anymore. They call them houses, homes, set homes. It's still going on. It. Of course it is. Maybe not as bad as it was in the 60s and them days. It's going on, all right. And... That also had a huge impact because that exposed the industrial schools in a way that had never been done before. And that actually led to uh, a state apology and led to one of the first large commissions that we've had looking at these issues, the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse. Now, they're the, the moments, the key cultural moments where many people became aware of this, but Prior to that, in the previous decades, a number of survivors and activists were attempting to get the story into the Irish media. One of the most poignant books, I guess, was um, Founded on Fear. It's Peter Tyrrell's story. He was sending chapters of that story and his experience of the industrial schools to Owen Sheehy Skeffington, who preserved them. And the manuscript was found in the Sheehy Skeffington papers before it was published. The likes of Peter Tyrrell, who are Paddy Doyle, who are trying to to tell their story, as well as in, in the cultural realm and the artistic realm, we have a number of writers 
who are also trying to get this story out and to talk about issues of of class and incarceration in a way that hadn't been discussed before. But it's really the 1990s before I think Irish society as a whole began to grapple with this. Christine Buckley was one of the most prominent campaigners on behalf of those who had been confined to industrial schools. In the following interview, she gave a reaction to the Ryan Report on child abuse, published in 2009. Well, you've read out shocking headlines there, and all I did was just nod, because they're shocking, they're unimaginable, yet they're minuscule. Most of us who went and who have survived institutional abuse, we haven't told it all. You couldn't possibly tell it all. Because in doing so, I don't think I would ever recover. And that's, there's so much that is just locked in my brain. And I certainly know hundreds of others because the public wouldn't be able to stomach it yet we were children and babies and we had to stomach it and there is a few aspects in the report I mean I only just give it a cursory look for example you know just as Ryan says that the the average age going into these hell holes was 8 years of age totally incorrect there was babies in Golden Bridge. There was babies turned upside down, beaten to a pulp because they cried. There was babies strapped to potties. And we, as children, were forced to push their rectums up. I went into care at three weeks. I didn't go in at eight. And the other thing is that we could not get a job in the civil service. We could not vote. We had a criminal record. On my detention slip, it states, what crime did this child commit? And the crime, the answer, found wandering. I'm three years of age, wandering in Terenure. And a judge, Justice McCarthy, sees this in front of him in a court and doesn't ask questions. The local historian Catherine Corliss uncovered proof that nearly 800 children were buried in a mass unmarked grave at a mother and baby home in County Galway. The following clip comes from her first Irish television appearance in 2017 to discuss her research. When did you know that you, you had what you needed to, to bring this to the attention of the public? Well, seeing that I couldn't get death records and uh, the knowledge that there were burials there, I had to just try and figure out how on earth am I going to, to find out any record, any details at all. Mm-hmm. So I went to the births, deaths, marriages offices in Galway. That, uh, well, it's public access. You can get, you can yes. get any birth record. And uh, they, 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 they came back to me. They said, look, there's a lot of deaths here in the home. There's quite a lot. And I presume maybe 50, 100, that would be substantial. Mm. And um, when they told me that there was hundreds and hundreds of deaths in the home between 1925 and 1961, Mm. I was absolutely horrified. And I said, I must get those records. Mm. I must have this proof. Mm. So I I got the details of each and every of the 798 deaths 
that, that occurred in the home itself, died in the home. And there were no burial records for these. Now tell me, mm. uh, the, the, um, the, you, they have no burial records for these children. So uh, the fact was that these children must have been dying at an alarming rate compared to the number of deaths in the average population at the time. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Uh, I believe there were at least five times the average. And what would have caused that level, that, 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 that unbelievable spike in the number of deaths compared to the average population? Well, I'm told uh, along the way I was making that point and I was told uh, was, there was no penicillin that time. There was no, there was no medicine. What, mm. could, what, I mean, what could they do? But in my mind, my mind was telling me that uh, the Bonsecours were a nursing congregation. Mm. They, they would have known about hygiene and about separating babies who were ill. Yes. And uh, I don't think there was any need for the epidemics that there were between so, measles, so soap and cough. It was pure neglect. To me, that's all I can say, that yeah. it was neglect. And of course we will know... By After the revelations about the mother and baby homes, the Irish Taoiseach and the Kenny made the following statement in the National Parliament, the Doyle. The tomb is not just a burial ground... It's a social and cultural sepulchre. That's what it is. Because as a society, uh, in the so-called good old days, we did not just hide away the dead bodies of tiny human beings. We dug deep and we dug deeper still to bury our compassion, to bury our mercy, to bury our humanity itself. You see, no nuns broke into our homes to kidnap our children. We gave them up. What we convinced ourselves was the nuns' care. We gave them up maybe to spare them the savagery of gossip, the wink and the elbow language of delight, in which the holier-than-thous were particularly fluent. And we gave them up because of our perverse, in fact, morbid relationship with what you call respectability. And for a while, indeed, it seemed as if in Ireland, our women had the amazing capacity to self-impregnate. And for their trouble, we took their babies and we gifted them, or we sold them, or we trafficked them, or we starved them, or we neglected them, or we denied them, to the point of their disappearance from our hearts and from our sight, from our country, and in the case of Tume, and possibly other places, from life itself. At the beginning of 2021, the current Irish Taoiseach, Michal Martin, apologise on behalf of the Irish state for what happened in the mother and baby homes. I apologise for the profound generational wrong visited upon Irish mothers and their children who ended up in a mother and baby home or a county home. As the Commission says plainly, they should not have been there. I apologise for the shame and stigma which they were subjected to and which for some remains a burden to this day. In apologising, I want to emphasise that each of you were in an institution because of the wrongs of others. Each of you is blameless. Each of you did nothing wrong and has nothing to be ashamed of. Each of you deserved so much better. How would you assess the official reports that have been published examining these practices? Do you think there's been an honest reckoning with the past by the Irish state? I think that if we are to take the the different reports, so one of the first reports is into the industrial schools and reformatories. That's the SICA inquiry or the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse or the Ryan report as it became known. That 
includes a lot of testimony that was incredibly harrowing. And as a document for a historian and for survivors, individuals could see their story in that commission. The commission, however, also had huge issues, in particular, the indemnity deal that was basically done between the Irish state and the religious orders. So the religious orders have paid a very small minority of uh, the redress to survivors. And I think that's that's an issue because obviously that is is not demonstrating their their own responsibility when it came to the operation of the schools. Other issues came with how survivors were treated when it came to redress and to the organizations that followed it. And that's been quite well documented, as well as the so-called gagging order, which meant that those who had had given their testimony were not to, I suppose, give it in any other forum. And lastly, the fact that prosecutions would not follow on from, from that report. Yet, if we look at the current report into the mother and baby homes, as they were known, we can all, almost champion the secret inquiry because this has been possibly one of the worst inquiries we've had or the finished product has. In between these, we had the McAleese report, which I think campaigners such as Justice for Magdalene's uh, research have demonstrated has huge issues with it. And that was looking into the situation in Ireland's uh, Magdalene laundries. The current inquiry, which began and is probably most known for the work of Catherine Corliss in 2014, who is a, a Galway historian and who exposed the death at that time. It was a figure of 796 infants in the tomb mother and baby home. So the mother and baby homes inquiry, which which published its report in January 2021, it took six years. And in the last few weeks, it has become clearer to academic survivors and to those affected by the institutions, how that final report came about. And one of the biggest issues with that final report is the 550 testimonies that were given to the confidential committee were not used to influence the main body of that report. So only the testimonies to the investigative committee were used to come to conclusions on systemic failures in the institutions. So when I know when I first saw the report, I was very surprised that no physical abuse was found, apparently, no other types of abuse, um, or they were only in a limited number of cases. So now that that's become clear that those testimonies were not integrated, were not taken into account, it makes it actually provides a clarity to the situation because it shows that, uh, first of all, these testimonies were not given the same weight as, say, an official document like or an administrative document like uh, a, a register or a recording from someone in a position of power in the institution. But not only were they not given the same weight, they just weren't given any weight bar a general report where many survivors have said 
they can't identify their story. They can't see themselves in that report. So I think it's incredibly problematic and how the Irish state moves forward in regards to this would need to be survivor-led. It would need to be cognizant of the principles of historical justice, which it hasn't been so far. And we've a lot of international examples, a lot of good practice in other commissions that could have been utilised here and wasn't. Many thanks to Sarah Ann Buckley for giving us that introduction to the history of social repression and abuse in Ireland. We're going to finish now with a song that captures some of the dissenting spirit that history provoked. Dublin band The Radiators released their album Ghost Town in the same year that the Pope came to Ireland, 1979. The most famous track, Song of the Faithful Departed, was a defiant counterblast. God.